A warm welcome to Ankara for the man regarded as the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman meeting Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, keen to put years of disagreement behind them and get down to business. Qatar's Emir is in Cairo for talks with the Egyptian president. It's his first visit to the country after years of strained ties. Images of hugs and smiles. You might be excused for thinking this is just another meeting between political BFFs. But just a couple of years ago, the thought of the Saudi crown prince traveling to Turkey and the Emir of Qatar setting foot in Egypt, well, it would have been something of a crazy fantasy. A dramatic turnaround after years of tensions and blockades between regional rivals. Hello guys, I'm Sami Zaydan and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Now my guest job was to follow and report on the nitty-gritty of those developments. I'm Jamal Al-Shayal, senior correspondent at Al Jazeera English. I've been covering the Middle East and Middle East-related stories for almost 20 years now, and I'm joining you all today from the capital of Qatar, Doha. Good to have you with us, buddy. Jamal, the Emir of Qatar in Egypt, the Saudi crown prince in Turkey. A lot has changed since, what, just a couple of years ago when those leaders were seen as bitter rivals. What's prompted this turnaround? The optics definitely have changed, Sami. There's been a lot of movement on different fronts which have created both opportunities to maybe solve issues or come closer, as well as has forced those rivals to maybe set aside, I would say, their rivalry or their differences more than that they've resolved it, right? We always say that politics is the art of the impossible. And as you mentioned, you know, a few years ago, particularly when it comes to Turkey and Saudi Arabia, in the aftermath of the killing and assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, it would have been unheard of or unthinkable to say that President Erdogan would have been visiting Saudi Arabia or that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman would have been visiting Turkey. But in that time, there have been a number of issues. And when we talk about what's prompted it, I don't think it's one specific thing. As I say, I would categorize them both in terms of needs, necessities on one side and opportunities on the other. All right, but was there a big catalyst in the sense of the arrival of the Biden administration? On the side of the Saudi-Egypt division, yes, that was a major catalyst in that they no longer had that kind of blank check from a Trump administration, which allowed them to go rogue and do whatever they wanted. The Biden administration was a lot more traditional in its approach, wanted to return to conservative foreign policy in the sense that no rash actions, no chopping up journalists and consulates, no blockading countries in that respect. And then on the other side, when you're looking at Turkey, for example, one of the major catalysts would have been the economic situation, right? You know, soaring price of energy, the war in Ukraine now has caused an issue in terms of food security, the inflation that we're seeing in Turkey and the devaluing of the lira, all of that has forced Turkey to look for better foreign investments, better relationships with countries that have the spending power, obviously Saudi being one of them. Qatar's perspective, I think, it finds itself a bit more unique situation than Turkey in that it didn't necessarily have the need so much to rectify ties with Saudi Arabia or with Egypt because ultimately it wasn't the protagonist, right? It wasn't the one that instigated these things. It was Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the UAE and Bahrain that imposed the blockade. 
But the blockade was economically awkward for Qatar, wasn't it? It was a disruption. Definitely. It was a disruption. It cost them more, particularly when we're looking at the build-up to the World Cup. But they've got very deep pockets, right? So whilst it cost them more, it wasn't an existential threat. That being said, Qatar is very much aware, or it wasn't an existential threat after Turkey stepped in and set up a military base here and so forth, right? That being said, Qatar is very much aware of its size in the end of the day. And when it sees that, for example, Turkey has had to warm up a bit with the Saudis and with the Egyptians, when it sees that, you know, it is costing it more than it should to maintain things, its default is to look for conflict resolution anyway. That's the Qatari brand, right? To look for negotiations. So I would say the main instigator from its part. And why I say it's important to look at the the shift in circumstances. We know that we know the US president is traveling to the region. Is this also part of why we're seeing regional leaders exchange visits amongst themselves? Are they trying to get ahead of where they see the US curve going? The intricacies within Middle East politics, within the region, are linked to try and kind of deconstruct it, are linked to certain major force fields or potentially centers of power. So the United States is a very big one because ultimately the amount of military bases it has here, military personnel, and the political cover it gives to certain military regimes or monarchies and so forth. Oil and gas and energy is also another big one because that is what gives some of these governments leverages in Europe, in the US, can impact on the price of it. One of the reasons why Biden is coming to, one of the main reasons why Biden's come here is essentially to request from the Saudis that they increase production to reduce the cost because he is currently in a very crappy situation. And then you've got other intricacies within it. We look at the ideological issues between the different countries within the Middle East. You look at sectarian issues within it. We're going to start talking about one of the things that the differences between the Riyadh and Washington currently in this administration is the view with regards to Iran and the JCPO and an attempt to revive the nuclear deal. So obviously all of these things. Now, when we're saying, okay, Biden's coming, what does this mean? And are people going to try and get the house in order? The truth is, a lot of these countries and a lot of these regimes, not the countries themselves, and so much as the regimes that run them, do so at the behest, to a certain degree, varying degrees, but do so at the behest of Washington. They depend on the US one way or another. And therefore, yes, they will try and assess where that curve is. we got to ask... Are we really witnessing the birth of a new alliance in the Middle East with Turkey and Qatar now kind of on the same side, I guess you could say, as Saudi and Egypt, or just a temporary pursuit of common interests? No, definitely it's the latter. Because like I say, you look at the major issues. And they haven't been resolved. They haven't been resolved. They haven't even been addressed. (laughs) This is funny, like, forget about being resolved. They literally have not been addressed, right? So when you're looking at the major issues... As far as Qatar is concerned, for example, the differences with regards to its neighbors was its pursuit for a unique independent foreign policy that is contrary to, not necessarily even contrary, that is just different to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and so forth, was Qatar's belief in a more pluralistic approach when it came to engaging with the Arab and Muslim world, whereas the Saudis and the Emiratis in particular were a lot more single-minded, were not interested in discussing or even meeting with players like the Muslim Brotherhood or others that they disagree with when it comes to their approach towards the illegal occupation of Palestine. Qatar's belief that there should be no normalization until at least some of that occupation ceases and significant amounts of Palestinian rights are restored, whereas the UAE 
and Saudi probably very soon, at least publicly, will be following suit in terms of having much more rigorous normalization and relationships with the Zionist state. They're still on different sides of some of these conflicts. Well, what's interesting, I think when you look at Turkey, when you assess the trajectory of the Turkish political sphere, when you look at the presidential elections that are coming up next year, this is essentially Erdogan's last swing at anything. For many different reasons, these next elections will be his last elections. And I think that is actually defining every move that Turkey is making right now, more than principle, more than anything else, even more than economic interest, in the sense that obviously the economic interest plays a role that he needs the economy to be in a good situation to win. Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, is visiting Turkey for the first time since the murder of a Saudi journalist plunged relations between the two countries into crisis. MBS was in Ankara. It's his first visit since the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Does this mean now that that issue, that rift, is over? Yes, yes, quite frankly, because before that, the Turks agreed, despite all the big talk that they did back in the day, to transfer the case from a criminal case in Turkey to a criminal case in Saudi Arabia. After they had initially said, we have no faith in the Saudi judicial system, this happened in Turkey, we must try them here, arrest warrants and all that. They then, to pave the way for the rapprochement, said, well, actually, there's a case in Saudi Arabia and we have trust in the Saudis, so let the Saudis take this forward. So at least from a state level, they've diffused the situation. And obviously this is all to pursue some common interests. So what are they? Let's talk a little bit about that. What can Turkey and Saudi Arabia cooperate on? Well, as far as the Turks are concerned, money. That's what it's... So bring us money, invest in Turkey, increase the value of the lira, create jobs. Obviously, Saudi had put an embargo on Turkish produce and Turkish companies getting tenders for major construction projects, obviously, Bin Salman is on this kind of like ecstasy-driven revamping project of the kingdom where he wants to build entire new cities and so forth. So they want part of that cake, right? That will help Turkey, which has uh, seen like certain rates of inflation hit up to 100% in some respects, or even more than that in some sectors. So a lot of domestic economic considerations for the Turks. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps we should also talk about the third regional heavyweight, which we can't ignore in any discussion about any realignment of interest in the Middle East, Iran. Is Tehran being brought into this, well, I guess we could call it love fest, political love fest? Not really. And I think the idea, again, so this is what I was saying, where the Saudis are going to get a bit of benefit, is that when they have Turkey on board, it will somewhat distance Ankara, somewhat, I say somewhat, distance Ankara from Tehran for a period. So the Saudis are trying to bring Turkey, from their perspective, onto their side in their standoff with Iran. Yes, or at least, a worst-case scenario from Riyadh's perspective, at least not have Ankara standing shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with Tehran, right? The idea is to try and isolate Iran right. to an extent where you can put maximum pressure on its leadership, either in terms of refusing a deal, pulling out of Yemen or whatever it is that they want, or when they come to talk about Lebanon or other proxy conflicts that they have with the Iranians, Right. But that being said, obviously, Iran, as you mentioned, there is a major player. And therefore, you can't essentially negate it. But we, we come back to, for example, Biden's visit to Riyadh or to Saudi Arabia. 
there will be conditions that the Saudis will set if they are to increase oil productions, if they are going to help Biden reduce the cost of gas and oil in the US. And you think some of those conditions might have something to do with the big neighbor next door, Iran? 100%. I mean, that's what they'll want from them. It's always been the case. So hang on, Jamal, this is interesting. So to a certain extent, it sounds like we're saying what happens between the Arabs, between Turkey and the Arabs on the one hand and Iran on the other might have something to do with the progress Washington makes in reaching its understanding with Tehran. Any Iran deal will not have anything, in my view, has very little to do with whether it's weapons of mass destruction, nuclear power, whatever it is, as much as it is to do with what do the Saudis want, what do the Americans want, what do the Turks want, what do who and each one of those, how are their economies doing, what elections do they have? Is it in Saudi's interest to show? Let's take a moment to remind our listeners and ourselves of some of the events in recent years which drove tensions between, if we can call them, these regional blocs. In June 2017, tensions between Gulf Arab countries exploded when four countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain, imposed a blockade on Qatar. Qatar is under an increasingly great amount of pressure from its neighbours, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, as well as the United Arab Emirates. As we've heard, it's essentially a blockade. The land links have been cut, the air link, the sea link. And those countries had a list of demands. A 13-point list, which was seen by the AP. Among the demands on the list were that Qatar shut Al Jazeera, cut back diplomatic ties to Iran, and close a Turkish military base in Qatar. The letter also demanded the country sever all ties with the Muslim Brotherhood, Hezbollah. Well, that development drove Qatar into an even closer alliance towards Turkey and better cooperation with Tehran to survive the crushing blockade of food and other essentials. So, Jamal, let's start with the Gulf crisis. As far as we can tell, it looks like Qatar rejected all the demands of the blockading countries. Did the boycotters simply give up their demands? I would say they put them on hold. They haven't given them up. My expectation or prediction would be that this crisis will flare up again. That's a good way of putting it, actually. Differences on hold for now. They hit the pause button. Essentially, and I'll tell you the proof in that, is that some of these issues are very long-standing. And these crises have happened. We remember, obviously, 2014, there was a similar crisis where they demanded things about Al Jazeera and they demanded things about Iran and so forth. And the GCC at the time block called out their ambassadors from Qatar. There was also a military threat at the time on Doha, which forced certain changes to take place at the time, or at least a kind of toning down of some of the rhetoric that was coming out. And we've seen it before, obviously, in 1996 and 1997. And so forth. So I do believe that it's just been put on hold. All right, that's the Gulf crisis situation. What about when it comes to Turkey and Saudi Arabia? Was a deal? Was it simply a matter of a deal being done? Turkey has become extremely transactional, and it's become extremely transactional because the president is very focused on getting past probably the biggest test of his life and his tenure, which is the next presidential elections. If he loses those elections, Sammy. The entire 20 years that he has been at the helm of the country, all the achievements that he's done, whether it's economic infrastructure, political, regional, the military, all of those things, he believes, and many analysts believe, are at risk. He believes the way forward is to win those elections and then start working on 
finding the next generation of whether it's ACT Party leadership or whatever you're going to call them, who will then run and field for the upcoming presidential elections. And why it's such a huge stake is because, ironically, because he changed the constitution to a presidential one. So everything is in one basket. Who wins the presidency, right? So as far as Turkey is concerned, and we've seen this done before, by the way, and I can go back in like five, 10 years before there was certain rapprochement happening with Russia, for example, even with Syria at the time and so forth, when the Turks, if it was in their interest domestically, they've set aside whatever principles or morals they claimed to pursue to focus on it. Let's talk about some of the other smaller countries within, if we can call it, the Saudi-led bloc. Saudi Arabia seems to have kind of led countries towards resolving tensions, right? Does the emir of Qatar's visit to Egypt, for example, show other countries allied to Saudi Arabia are also fully embracing this makeup session with the Turkey Qatar alliance, if we can call it that? I think whether they're embracing it or acknowledging the reality, obviously that's intention, right? So it doesn't really change much in terms of the immediate future and what it means tangibly. But as journalists or as people interested in the region and you want to... Well, hang on, if they're not fully embracing it, I mean, especially when it comes to other countries like Bahrain, the UAE in particular, maybe, if they're not wholeheartedly on board, they can still have a go at each other in other scenarios in other countries, right, where their interests are not aligned. Precisely, but that's what I'm saying. So if you try and categorize it between those two, those who are embracing it and those who are just acknowledging a reality, what does that mean? If you're simply, as you mentioned there, acknowledging the reality, then either you're going to have a go in other places or you are waiting for the next round of conflict or you are going to try and subvert what is being done through, whether it's media wars, whether it's through online propaganda and the use of bots and other things or smear campaigns, or whether it's even through sometimes economic wars, right? The evaluation of stuff. That, I believe, is where we are more on the side of just an acknowledgement of a reality that, as we mentioned there, there are different factors that have forced us to put aside or put on hold those differences. And nobody actually knows what's in the future. Jamal. Get out the crystal ball (laughs) and tell us, what does this temporary burying of the hatchet without a full resolution of all outstanding issues? I'm going to answer in a different way, which is I think we focused a lot on the regimes, on the leaders, on the politicians, right? We haven't spoken much about the people, about societies in this region. And I believe that a big part of miscalculation, and we saw this specifically firsthand when we were reporting on the Arab Spring and the protests and the uprisings of late 2010, early 2011, is that everybody has consistently, everybody, by this I'm talking about journalists, analysts, security services, politicians, everybody has consistently miscalculated the movement of societies and mass movements of people, particularly actually when it comes to Palestine. That means within Palestine, occupied uh, Palestine, and the wider Middle East and how they view it and what a catalyst Palestine continues to be and shall continue to be. So when we're looking at the future, I do believe that there are strategies that are being put in place. There are lobbies, there are media campaigns, there are, uh, you know, economic visions and all of this that is happening and trillions of dollars, literally trillions of dollars being spent on this by Gulf countries and even by their allies in the region. However, what happened in 2010, 2011, whilst it was to some extent suppressed, it wasn't crushed, 
And the issues that exist within the Middle East in terms of the aspiration for freedom, in terms of the desperation for economic sustainability on an individual level, and by that I'm talking about just simple jobs and the ability to feed your family, the frustration that exists due to a lack of ability to express oneself, and all the other triggers and stress points that exist. Those, I believe, are going to determine what's going to happen in the future because there will be another explosion of expression across the Arab world. I like it how you bring it back in the end to watching out for what's going on with the little guy on the street. Jamal, this has been an absolutely fabulous chat. It's always good talking to you, of course. Usually we talk to each other on camera. But yeah, it's been good talking to you without the cameras running too, as always. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Jamal. Awesome, Sami. Thank you very much. And thank you for tuning in, guys. Let me give a shout out to the people behind the scenes that made all of this possible. Our producer, Khalid Sultan. George Alwir, our sound designer. Our lead engagement producer, Ayel Malik. And our assistant engagement producer, Munir Dusri. And then, of course, there's our big boss, the executive producer, Omar Saleh. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, it's goodbye, guys. 